This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 535 for November 23rd, 2016. Well, I'm thankful. How about you? Uh, this is the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And as we enter a week in which we're, we're in America, we're obliged legally to give thanks. I'm, uh, I have some <laughs> things to be thankful for. Susie Oaks, executive editor of Macworld. How, uh, how is your thanks uh, week going? I'm always thankful for another week. I try to. <laughs> I really am. No, I like. Uh, that sounds sarcastic, oh, but it's not. Every day is a gift. It is. I write down what I'm thankful for. I try to really make that a part of my worldview. No, I'm totally sincere. It's like I, I, I have uh, almost died a number of times in my life. Not sometimes closer and sometimes farther. Sometimes like, uh, well, if you don't get treatment for this, you will die in X months, right? Um, and I got treatment and it worked. So I have, um, I do have the every day is a gift thing, but I don't rappel down the side of ice cliffs. I don't, because that would feel like less of a gift to me. <laughs> you know, some days more than others but yes. yeah every day is a gift plunging off ice cliffs is right out um even this week so uh we get comments we get comments and uh, we welcome your feedback as we said and it's going to change a little bit uh, because idg is no longer allowing comments or offering the ability to place comments on web pages um that's kind of that system i know was uh, a little kind of legacy system. It was becoming more and more frustrating for uh, users and editors to keep on top of. And so IDG has decided because most of the discussion about things is at, in social networks that uh, they're looking for people to provide feedback. We're at Macworld on Twitter. So you can always do that. You can find Susie, S-F-S-O-O-Z, S-F-S-O-O-Z. I'm Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F on Twitter. And uh, tw- Macworld, of course, has a Facebook page, facebook.com slash what could it be? Macworld. Uh, and so uh, articles and links get posted in both those places, and you can respond to those. You can send messages or, you know, you can uh, post comments. You can start threads. Um, you can harangue us there. And we do have an email address, podcast at macworld.com, and some of you do send emails. So it's a little bit of a change. A lot of you won't notice because uh, one of the reasons I think uh, the comments are excised from the web pages is that fewer people were using them because most of the discussion isn't happening on the web. It's happening elsewhere, as many publications have found out. Yeah, and I mean, we it wasn't just a Macworld decision. Um, I just want to remind people that like it, this is a big group of sites, and um, the Macworld commenters were pretty good, and everybody kind of held the Macworld commenters up as like, like you know, these are the best commenters. Like these guys actually add something, and they have some fruitful discussions. There was a lot of moderation behind the scenes that kept it that way. Comment spam is like the battle is real, and <laughs> it is never ending. And um, the tools we had were pretty good, but you know, it took a lot of time, and we didn't have a dedicated person doing that. I think back in the day they did, but um, not a lot of sites have that anymore. A few are exceptions. Actually, my friend Amber over in in Gadget is the community editor, but she does some moderation and she actually solicits um, pieces from the community Mm -hmm. like to, you know, react to different things and and tell their own stories. So that's really cool that Engadget does that. But um, we we don't have, you know, any kind of person on staff whose job it is. So it just kind of fell to everybody else. And, you know, some days were better than others at at keeping all that spam away. So um, so it was partially a decision on that. And it was mostly driven by like the low quality 
quality of comments on other sites, but Macworld commenters were pretty good. So if anyone's, you know, bummed about that, I'm sorry. Like, you know, we we told them that we wanted to keep it, but it didn't it didn't really work out that way. Yeah, it's kind of I mean, I realize the downside is if you don't use Facebook and some people don't, some people don't like the privacy issues or being part of social networks or whatever, uh, then it makes it a little bit harder if you don't use that or Twitter. Um, I know uh, most recently like gone. So you had to have a social login to comment because it was like a cost saving thing, I think. But um, but yeah, so. And, you know, and it's some commenters, we all know that like a lot of commenters are jerks and, you know, the the signal to noise ratio is is never really like it's always more noise than signal. And, and we tried really hard to to keep that to keep that down with the macro comments. But now, you know, we're not going to do that anymore and we'll be able to concentrate on other things and taking the conversation over to Twitter and Facebook. And we really do want to hear from you. I think Twitter didn't they stop counting like um, exactly at people in the comment thing? So you could at all of us. You could at me and Macworld and Glenn, and then you know someone will get to it. And I'm going to do better about uh, watching the the Facebook feed and the Twitter yeah, feed too. Without having to follow all the comments, like I'm writing, um, I have like several hundred articles up at Macworld because of all the Mac nine one one stuff, and it's impossible for me to see it all there. But if you tag me oh, somewhere yeah. else, uh, you know, then I can, which is great. So, and that goes to a feed that we're actually looking yeah, at. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's all in one place. So, you know, commenting systems can get better. And maybe someday there'll be one that's better for the web or integrates with different ones. not great. Yeah, it's just hard. It's it's a distraction if, you know, for a, a site like or the, the IDG family of sites um, that focus on technology news, you know, there's different kinds of articles. And some of them makes no sense. And some because it's like, well, whatever. You know, people can discuss this in a different place. This isn't where everyone's coming to talk about the issue. It's where everyone's coming to get some or some percentage of people are coming to get the information. Um, when you said spam away, I just started thinking, way up, uh, spam away, spam away, spam away. Sorry. I, just, and I mean, there's some really great sites that aren't doing comments. There's some that have turned it off recently. And I kind of, you know, I, I think that's a cool trend. But obviously, every site should do what's best for them. There are some Mac sites where I love the comments. Like iMore has great comments. Mac Rumors has wonderful comments. So, you know, like whether or not this decision is the right one for Macworld is up for debate. And I can see, you know, arguments on both sides. But it's, it's just at, a dot, at the end of the day, yeah, they're this, going away. Discussion, I'm sorry, discussion had died down so much that it's sort of, you know, it becomes a less, it becomes less relevant to have comments if the community isn't there. So that's the yeah. thing. So the community is elsewhere and we'll find you elsewhere. We do still want to hear from you, yeah. just oh, not... Speaking of feedback, we got a little there. feedback about last week's uh, endless discussion between Susie and I about the, <laughs> Mac, the MacBook Professional. That's the book that Apple produced. Designed that's in an California, actual book. The Apple yeah, I'm book. calling it the MacBook Professional. I think that's a good because it's you know, only three hundred bucks. I can't. That's not confusing. Uh, at all. So anyway, but so the uh, the Design in California book. We talked about it for quite a bit, and some of you thought we went on too long or too harsh, or um, or some folks found it funny. And I just want to reiterate. I have one sentence about that, which is you know we do listen like I said, we listen to what you say, and we try to shape the podcast around people's interests. But thank you the, for your feedback. Our but the primary thing is it's indicative to Susie and I of not a lack of focus because Apple could have contracted the whole thing out and Johnny Ive was approving page proofs, right? It's indicative of Apple doing something that doesn't make sense for it right now. It sends the wrong message and it makes us concerned that they're investing 
time and marketing to something that seems self-indulgent. And that's an entirely separate issue from whether the book is good or you should buy it. I don't think most people will buy the book. A small percent will. This is really what it really is. There's and it no became, question whether the book's going to be nice. It's going to be yeah. the nicest book you've ever seen. It's what it really is. It's a gift to Johnny Ive. It's a gold watch. You know, hey, thank you for all your service. We're doing a book that's about you and we're going to celebrate you. But it should have been through another publisher like Toshin or, you know, one of the, the uh, not vanity, but uh, high quality art publishers who would have gladly taken it on because Apple would have sold it in the stores. The fact they did it directly makes it a little bit too, it just, I don't know. I'm, like I said, I'm not going to go on about it, but it's clearly, it's a gift to Johnny Ive and it's cool that they did it because it recognizes his achievement and that's the, in the end. How about that? That's the end, right? But we can talk about something else that's more relevant. How about that? Sure. Um, I am very bummed about this. Uh, the news out of Bloomberg from uh, Mark Ehrman, who's got all the sources inside I Apple. I am too. Sometimes I, I think he's, uh, omni- he's uh, omniscient. He just like cracks open the top of uh, one infinite loop and looks in and, and uh, reports <laughs> on what he sees. Uh, so Bloomberg reports that the airport team at Apple, the one that's been building base stations and other stuff for uh, going on uh, since 1999 now, has been disbanded. And the people involved shifted to other teams. And slowly, I think, you know, it's over the last year. And uh, ostensibly, there will be no more Apple-branded Wi-Fi routers. That's a bummer because I love Apple routers and it's not even that I think the router itself, like I don't really know enough about router hardware, like the people who do that I work with tell me that I can get much better router hardware from other companies for, you know, better prices. But I like it because of airport utility. I like opening up airport utility on my Mac or on my iOS device and it's just saying like, hey, what do you want to do? Like it starts with the end in mind. It's like, are you just trying to extend your network? Do you just want to plug in a printer? And then it walks you through it. And if you want to get all advanced and forward ports and all that stuff, um, you can do that too. But it's so much better. Every other browser like interface I've tried with using, you know, going through a browser and uh, uh, to, to change router settings, it just I hate it. It looks terrible. It looks like a Windows thing. Like it's confusing. I don't know what all the acronyms mean. There's no help. There's no like friendliness. It just makes me scared. And that's why people don't do things like changing the default password for their router and, you know, like security things because they're just like, I don't know. It's all working. I don't want to touch it. So... I, you know, I think that if if we if Apple really is um, dropping airport, I just I want airport utility to be like open to, you know, you can it'll detect any router and, and, and just work with with anything, because I think that's the bigger loss than the actual hardware itself. I am in full agreement with you. Um, I wrote a piece at uh, I think at Tidbits a couple year or two ago about like all the things that uh, were that all the special things that were left in Apple routers versus the things that Apple was behind on doing. And every you know year there were fewer and fewer things that Apple uh, had that were distinct. Um, you know one of them was of course AirPlay, but only with the Airport Express, which has a built-in uh, analog digital optical output port. And so that was the only way. Um, it remains the only way without using a computer to get uh, AirPlay compatible output to like a stereo. Um, I have a stereo. I have a Yamaha that's a few years old, and it's the last one that included AirPlay support built in. So I could AirPlay to my receiver directly, uh, but then the next model they produced didn't have it. And so I don't know if Apple discouraged AirPlay licensing, but you know, AirPlay – I think is one of Apple's best features, and it only works among, uh, you know, devices. Uh, uh, Rogue Amoeba's um, software. It's uh, I'm blanking out the name. It's called. I've got it right here. Airfoil. Airfoil. Thank you. Airfoil. Uh, I highly recommend if you haven't checked out Airfoil. 
That's Love a- A-I-R-F-O-I-L. It's an incredible piece of software for uh, if you have um, music and devices in different places in a house and you want to control them or you want to make your Mac an audio destination, you can use a free piece of software. You can get Airfoil on one machine and use Airfoil satellite uh, just to receive Airplay um, uh broadcasts from a Mac. Like, so sometimes I will have something on my iPhone. I don't want to transfer it to my Mac. I pick Airfoil, my desktop computer, Airfoil um, uh, setup as the destination in AirPlay on my iPhone, and then it just streams through there. It's pretty cool. Um, but Did you know about Airfoil Satellite bonus? Yeah, no, that's what, that's because you don't have to pay for Airfoil Satellite. That's free, and okay, you, can, yeah. you can use it as a destination. You have to pay for oh, Airfoil right, right, proper right, yeah. if you want to broadcast, essentially, or if you want to um, – uh, you need Airfoil proper for – uh, sending audio somewhere else from your Mac or Windows. So if you have an old iOS device and some speakers that are not, you know, Wi-Fi speakers, not AirPlay speakers, not Bluetooth speakers, you could plug those into the wall, dock your little device on there, and then use Airfoil satellite to like all of a sudden that's an AirPlay setup it's because you're AirPlaying cool. the thing to the phone and the phone's playing it out of the big speaker. So if you have any old stuff lying around, you could make a wireless setup that way. But yeah, I think, I mean, I've been writing about um, I, my career at some level, like my, I, I've had a couple different like writing careers, a little bit of the overlap. So in the mid nineties, I started by writing about fonts. That's what got me into professional trade magazines. Um, I was kind of a font and design person and I wrote a lot of that and did conferences and with folks and so forth. But then in uh, 2000, late 2000, Apple said, uh, can we send you this airport wireless networking thing to test? And, I, and, you know, and at the time, you needed to insert cards. You had to have the right computers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, all right, I might review it. And I was at the time writing for the Seattle Times um, regularly. And they sent it to me because I'd been dubious. You know, there'd been previous infrared and other wireless solutions in the 1990s that were wonky and weird. I was like, well, I keep keep hearing people talk about this Wi-Fi thing, but I don't know. And uh, they sent me, so Apple sent me all the gear I needed. I tested it out and I was totally blown away. That led me to pitching the New York Times, which I was writing for, as a freelancer about doing a story about public space Wi-Fi, like at, you know, cafes and which was already starting even in late 2000, uh, even though there were almost no devices out there. Uh, so I, um, that got me a cover story in the New York times section. And nice. then I started a Wi-Fi blog, the Wi-Fi networking news, which I ran for 10 years. And then I did a book a couple of years later with Adam Hanks called the wireless networking uh, uh, kit or book or something. And then that led to a book, with the Take Control series <clears throat> that I've still been updating, that I've done, I think, five different editions and like 15 revisions of over 50, over uh, 10 well, plus your years. Your next book can be like, what are we <laughs> supposed know. to do now? That, know. You know, yeah. <laughs> take control of, oh my God, what do I do at Wi Fi? But so, like, my take life has been. control of not using yeah. Apple routers anymore. Oh my God. So, like, 15, leaving us high and dry. 15, 16. Well, you know, so I have written a lot less about Wi Fi in the last four or five years. I, I shut down the Wi Fi networking news blog in 2011 because the subject became like, this wasn't enough news anymore. It becomes so relatively easy to use Wi-Fi and the um, the citywide networks that are being built never got built or their problems and advertising dried up and so forth. But So I spent like 10 plus years of my life were totally invested in Wi-Fi. It was a big hunk of the living I made. It's how I got in The Economist actually. It's my first story in The Economist in like 2005 was about municipal Wi-Fi. Um, so I have – I'm like not devastated but it's still like – you know. and I thought Apple has – not kept its hardware up to date. So to my yeah. mind, it's really been lagging. But, uh, you know, c- circle back, airport utility was the key. It wasn't necessarily how good or bad. I mean, at one point, Apple had the best, most reliable 
um, set of devices, especially that would work together. So you knew that Apple hardware would connect to Apple base stations. The Apple base stations would connect together. You could create a network with multiple base stations and use one front end to administer them. Uh, they had a tool called Apple uh, was it Apple Admin Utility, which you may never have seen, that was for administering a bunch of base stations at once. So I you know, could I don't put, know that. yeah, you could push configurations. But then Apple uh, switched its tree from the uh, Airport Utility five point whatever to six. About I think that was three years ago. I want to say uh, with the introduction of the I want to say it came out with the eight hundred two eleven n base stations, but it was a few years ago. They 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 totally revamped their interface. They gave up this front end they've been using for several years since the introduction. Practically, maybe I mean, there's close to it, and came out with something that was much simpler, exposed fewer features, and really annoyed a lot of people. It was better for beginning users. Was not good for advanced users, and. Uh, I don't know. I feel like they have not had a lot of interest in updating it for a while, but um, there are things, just the fact that, uh, you know, you've got other competitors. Uh, so I haven't tried these uh, things like um, the, uh, what's it called? Eero. Eero. Yeah, Eero. Yeah. And um, Google's got OnHub. And then that Google has some new Wi-Fi devices. Um, these come with- Wi-Fi I- is changing <clears throat> in this world of, you know, internet of things and stuff. Like it's more about mesh networking and, um, you know, Bidirectional, omnidirectional, everything. So it's it's less about you know when airport started, it was just connecting your computer to your router, but um, it's it's a lot more complicated now. And if if Apple is changing something and and going to come out with a new product, it would make sense to you know sort of do that at the same time as you're discontinuing airport. But they haven't announced anything about airport. Right. So this is all and um, Bloomberg's report does have an interesting um, tidbit that uh, they thought that the airports people were being reassigned and some of them were going to the Apple TV team which is kind of intriguing because another you know trend is these these uh, you know personal assistant kind of speakers like Alexa and stuff so and and home hubs and and different things like that so Apple could try to be rolling its own solution that kind of combines aspects of you know a speaker that you would talk to and you know talk to Siri that way and um, routers maybe you know one for every room and then that would also blanket your house and really nice Wi-Fi and then it would be you know a home hub that you could check in when you're outside um, like you can do with the Apple TV now they would also be TV tu- you know tuners and, and and devices so you could hook them up to screens in these different rooms that they were in or not and maybe it would be something more flexible like that um, because I do think that you know if, if they take this away if they take away airport we are kind of losing a few things that you know might be considered selling points like the 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 whole time capsule thing and how oh, it, yeah, it's supposed but... to be so easy like I don't actually back up my laptops that way but I don't like time capsule and I think if you no. could, you know the time capsule I feel like is another neglected part of Apple's ecosystem because it could it's, be good it's never gotten better like it's it's more reliable than it used to be by far I think they fixed some of the reliability issues but just yesterday I see someone talking about how um, what did I get uh, it wasn't Mac 911 email but I got uh, I was talking to someone about this anyway just a couple of days ago where they had had a, um, a backup uh, they you know, attach the drive to the system. It says like, there's no backups on here. They, um, I think power cycled it and it came back and it like rebuilt it, but there's no, there's no troubleshooting for yeah. time capsule backups. When they go bad, you're stuck where with every other backup, keep everything in the cloud now, right? But... Well, with every other backup system you have, there's some way to rebuild a set locally. And, you know, crash plan, um, has local backup. I was just testing, um, 
this software called uh, Chronosync, which is interesting because it's designed to sync file or folders, but they just add the ability to sync to Amazon S3 cloud service, uh, cloud storage, and to Google Cloud, uh, which is a different thing than uh, Google Docs. There's like a Google, Google Cloud thing that's a business offering, but you can use it without paying any monthly fees, just on demand, and it will back up over SFTP to any server that supports that, which is you know just a standard protocol. So Chronosync is like, it's it just backs up files, but it can make archives by creating an archive folder and it tracks versions. And um, so there's, there are other tools, but I just, I never recommend Time Capsule or Time yeah. Machine because if, especially Time Capsule, if something goes wrong, your drive is locked away. You can't get to the data. You can't run disk utility on it. It just kills the backups. That's true. Like I would rather, you know, connect a drive to the router if you're right. trying to do that because then yeah at least you know you can separate them if you have to but i mean, I mean just the fact that they offered like a whole solution like kind of an end-to-end -end no i agree thing Plug that's and play. very apple and they're kind of taking like you know a, a, a spoke out of the wheel and it just seems it seems weird if they're doing this again like we don't actually right. know so be, i'm, I'm kind of jumping yeah. to conclusions that well, i said for a while that apple tv could just have been i think they should have replaced airport express with apple tv or maybe even airport extreme with apple tv except they're pretty similar yeah, they can I mean, do a lot of the same things well just and just briefly you know airport express hasn't been updated since 2012 so it does uh, an airport extreme and Airport Time Capsule or 2013 is the last update. And uh, Airport Express has uh, a digital analog output, Hoslink style output for uh, audio. And it also has a single USB port. Um, and uh, while the, uh, the Airport Extreme and Time Capsule have uh, one USB port, but you can attach a hub, and they also have a little uh, Ethernet hub in it as well. So you can attach multiple hard drives and printers to an Airport Extreme or time capsule. So it was a way to network. You know, I have a printer, you plug it in and suddenly it's an air print device because it's accessible through the airport sure. um, extreme. But that's less of an issue because air print or other similar things that's are now built into the printers. Yeah. Now. And they all have yeah. Wi-Fi. Printers are all Wi-Fi or they, you can get Wi-Fi options or you have it plugged into a computer. So it's not as big a deal that uh, that's not as necessary. Plugging drives into an airport extreme is less necessary because people have either bigger hard drives or they're using true network attached storage, which is easily available for consumer and business scale. You don't need a drive on a, on a, um, a low performance, you know, base station. Uh, so all these features are kind of going away, but Air so Apple TV, before it came out, I was thinking last summer, well, this is a way that Apple gives you a Wi-Fi base station, which takes a very small amount of computational power to run. Most of the functionality is in a chip and it needs a little CPU to handle some routing. It's not a big deal. And a lot of what people would be doing is probably streaming from the Apple TV. So it's not even routing other devices, it's just sending its own data over yeah. the connection. Um, oh, that could really help, couldn't it? Yeah, and they didn't do it. And I don't think, I mean, at $200, $150 or $200, they could easily have built in the equivalent of an Airport Express because most of the Airport Express functionality, I mean, most of the cost of the Airport Express is the form factor in hardware. It's not, you know, having a Wi-Fi chip. And the Air, the airport, or sorry, the Apple TV has pretty much with the Wi-Fi technology that's built in for just being a client on a network, it mm -hmm. has almost everything it needs to be a base station too. So maybe next year's Apple TV becomes, you know, not just a, um, a home, uh, a home kit 
base station, but it's also a Wi-Fi base station, and you know it's configured Please through airport utility. Give it some utility. ports if that happens. Don't be like, and oh, it's yeah. the base station with no Ethernet well, ports. They might no, do, Apple, they might do that ports. though. They might do that. Ports. That might be that might be the orientation. <laughs> you want ports? You get another base. Ports, so ports, I got at, at the suggestion of Wirecutter after evaluating a bunch of stuff that I was trying to find to replace an Airport exp- uh, Extreme last year. I had my Airport Extreme go bad, and uh, I have uh, three base stations, actually four, in my small house. We had a lot of walls and, and uh, thick walls and uh, the Old houses, like, just pile them on. Yeah, so I use, never have too many base stations. I use right? Ethernet as the backbone. Exactly. I have Ethernet as the backbone. I've got a device I have to use from my gigabit internet provider. Uh, they require me to use a router from them because it has some special sauce in it to deal with some fiber nonsense. And that stuff is not available. If it were available in regular routers, I could just turn it on. But there's like two features you need. So they basically give you this thing. So I've got that with a network I don't use. And then I've got three base stations that are connected via Ethernet that I do. I wound up getting an Archer, uh, sorry, TP-Link Archer C7, and I think it's now been replaced by the C8, which is 802.11ac, so the fastest current flavor. It's uh, three streams, which is the fastest, you know, best current thing. Um, it's got uh, a bunch of Ethernet ports. It can support printers. You can attach USB devices to it. Um, it's got a reasonably good configuration. It's not that hard to update the firmware. Um, it's got the usual thing you were talking about, the kind of web-based interface that's really ugly and a pain, but theirs is not so horrible. And it's been great. It's 100% reliable. I think I've had right. to reboot it, you know, twice in a year or something. Um, and so, you know, take a look, so, but it's not, I think that this really happens, like you're going to have to write us a guide. Yeah, because... And that's like, well, you know, Michael Brown's been writing, he's been reviewing at uh, Tech Hive, the Eero and the newer ones that are coming, that yes. come out. Some he's of those, Mr. Router, he knows everything. Yeah, so some of those come with iOS and Android apps. They almost, none of them come with any desktop configurations. So you have to have a smartphone, hmm. but then you use the smartphone app to, um, you know, configure and allow access and do all kinds of stuff directly. So you don't have to use the terrible administrative interfaces. So yeah, if, you know, if this fails, I can write a, uh, all right, you're a Mac user. What do you need? Like, how are you going to configure this? And I've been rethinking my book, Take Control of Apple Wi-Fi, which is relevant currently, uh, <laughs> but um, we got to think about what people will want to do to connect their iOS and other devices at best capability. Um, the truth is, oh, the other thing is Apple was still selling the Airport Extreme for $180. The TP link that I got was 92 bucks and it, it, it's yeah. and it's far better in every way except the interface that was the big um the big difference if they can make apple if they can make airport utility work with other routers that would be my best oh. case scenario the other thing was you know that apple used to you know sort of push apple filing protocol afp was their file sharing method and they supported smb or samba on the side which was considered kind of a windows or linux thing but apple has gradually shifted away from afp so that was a thing you could get from an Apple base station. You couldn't get, nobody else supported AFP. So you couldn't always mount drives. As the world has shifted to SMB, it's no longer an issue. And so that was yet a, you know, another little thing that you had to have an Apple base station for that just doesn't matter anymore. You can mount network drives through whatever protocols you want. Oh. Yeah, funny little thing. I know little, the little details of what drives people bonkers trying to get this stuff done. Uh, all right, so that's the, let's, let's move on, shall we? Sure. We have, we have other topics. We actually have a long list of topics, listeners, and we'll see. We don't get a sun this week. We'll get to others. But um, so uh, I like your uh, like your 
bullet point in this. Holy USB, Batman. Or did I write that? Maybe I wrote that. I think you wrote that. I can't that's even a, see. That's I'm a Glenn joke. Raising my own cleverness. That's uh, yep. I'm like Apple. Uh oh. Um, nice one, Glenn. Well, <laughs> whoops. Uh, yeah. So I know this this. Uh, she terrified you. This poison tap. You were um, you edited my column. Yeah, I edited that story yesterday, and I I said a bad word out loud while I was editing it, and it wasn't <laughs> because of what you wrote. It was just because I was like, I got it. Like you explained it really well. Like sometimes security stuff, I have to sort of like read it a few times, but because I just you know I'm learning a lot editing your your pieces, but um. But this one, I was just like, it was so clear that this was really bad and why. And I mean, it's it's a proof of concept and it would require physical access to your machine. So it's not like a, you know, the sky is falling kind of thing. But it's it was insidious. It was quite quite the quite the proof of concept. Everyone should read it just for like, because you could imagine this being like in a movie. Like this is like oh, Superman yeah. 3 kind of stuff. Superman 3. <laughs> I don't know. I'm no, just trying to think no, of a I movie where they Superman, do something it's a, shady. It's a good go-to. That's all, all, or Office Space, right? That's the same. They steal the plot. Yeah, this is going to be in the next Batman movie. That's and right. You, you wrote Holy USB Batman, so this could be in one of those dark like Batman movies. This could be what the what the criminal does to take control of everything. I am the peripheral that <laughs> that, sli- that, climb, that, peripheral. Sleep, that does not sleep at night. I am the Poison Tap. It's called Poison device. Tap. Like That sounds like a Batman villain. Like, poison Tap. Poison I see tap. what you've done there. You will not poison. Well, maybe the poison taps a lady. I mean, I don't know. You will not poison this city's USB. I am here to stop you. <laughs> um, the uh, so yeah, the the basic attack is um, you can this this fellow uh, Sammy uh, Kumkar has uh, come up with a lot of other like he's he's a a white hat who documents very deeply things that are terrible for users and consumers, and he's uh, you know spends a lot of his time. I asked him because a lot of people who do this are sort of full-time security consultants. So they might do it on the side. It might be a side project from work. He's mostly a software developer, and uh, but he has a kind of itches that he wants to scratch about the security stuff. And he often finds things that are, it's like hiding in plain sight. And this one is that if you plug in a USB or Thunderbolt device to almost any modern operating system desktop version, like Windows, uh, many versions of Linux or Mac, uh, the device, if it says it has a network connection like Ethernet, your computer will say, great, uh, okay, so let's get an internet address uh, automatically. And the and if this device, uh, like it's a, the way he's got it set up, it's a small computer. It's a Raspberry Pi Zero, which costs like 25 bucks to buy, you know, if you want to get one of these things. And it runs a little bit of software. That's the starter kit. You can get just the board for $5. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, if you want the whole thing. So you, you, plug, you plug it in. It says, I'm a network device. The operating system says, great, let's get addresses. Uh, sends out a query and the device, the poison tap, pretends to send a network query and it says, okay, I uh, my address range is the entire internet. And there's nothing in an operating system that prevents that from happening. Now, there are third-party so- security software that may be installed in, in uh, enterprises, like uh, co- big companies, uh, they're, you know, in government installations and so forth that prevent adding network interfaces. So this, is, But it's unclear whether this will go around it because it's um, it ha- if, if you have an operating system that's configured or has third-party software that doesn't let you add a network interface or change networking values without some kind of administrative override – then, you know, in that case, you're cool, but that's going to be a subset of all computers in the world. Uh, so you plug this in, it says, I'm the entire internet. And then even though you have touched nothing on your computer, even if your computer is locked and has a password protected screen up, this device suddenly can route the entire internet. And what it does, which is so insidious, is 
If you have any web page open at all, any web browser, any tab open that does any web refresh, like it pulls a new ad in, it updates a number, it's doing any kind of internet communication, and most, this is the secret of the web right now, is most web pages are reporting about you when they're just sitting yeah. there. Um, Absolutely. Oh yeah. If you want to see this, folks, if you're curious about this, if you're in Safari, you can enable in the um, in preferences. You can enable under what is it? Advanced. Uh, click Show Develop Menu in Menu Bar. Then you get a Develop Menu, and this is on the sorry Mac OS, not in the iOS. Then the Develop Menu, you can do Show uh, uh, Show Web Inspector. I think you start with that, and then you click the Network uh, tab on it. And it shows you what's going on. So as your device is communicating back and forth, you will see all of these documents and communications going on in this list. Like I've got a, a Google Docs document open right now, and it's doing all kinds of back and forth. So even if you think you have these benign tabs open, they're communicating with the server. So Poison Tap, then the first connection that comes through that's over HTTP, that's unencrypted, which many connections are, it sends back a Susie. A million page requests. A million, a million page requests. And I asked him, I said, really a million? He said, yeah, he figured out the this way. A million most popular sites on the internet because you'll probably have accounts at like, you know, 50 or 60 of them and you might have exactly. cookies sitting on your machine for like 10 or 15. Oh, so and I asked. So he said they figured out this technique. He said, he said normally this would crash browsers, right? You open a million sites, but he figured out there's actually a way to request a page without pushing it into the uh, document model that's used to build and render pages. If you don't push it into the document model, it's very low impact. Um, so, uh, so it, it tries to make connections to a million pages. It grabs all of the unencrypted cookies that it can. Then it has the ability to open. It sends it back to a control server. Then it could also hijack your router. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! By opening, it has like all the popular router passwords. And because it's on the local network, because even, most people don't change their router's right? default password. Right. And Apple's good about that. I think when you set up a Apple router, I don't think you can use the default. I think you have to do something at least. Um, I haven't done that in so long, but I believe there's a. Uh, it'll, it'll gives you I the think it does make you change it. I think what it could do is be a little more clear that you have a network password and a router password yeah, and a Mac confusing. password. And I definitely know some people who aren't so techie that don't get why they have like so many passwords and like just for one machine. Like I'll be like, okay, well, how, how do you unlock your Mac? And they're like, I don't know what the password. Like, it's it's tough. Well, you could have uh, if you have drives on attached to an Airport Extreme or in the Time Capsules case, you can actually set up um, user passwords too. So you could have a Mac password an airport admin password, a network password, and a, a hard drive password or partition password. And then your Apple ID, you know, do yeah, you have exactly. a password. It's very confusing. So, um, so anyway, Poison Tap, it, you do have, someone has to come into your place of business or home, plug this in, but it only has to be plugged in for maybe 30 to 60 seconds to accomplish 100% of what it needs to do. Then someone unplugs it and walks away, and this is persistently cached because it uses web properties because it thinks it's retrieved these web pages from servers. It can then uh, essentially burrow into your browser, and it's not. It's like malware that is using the good part of browser software against you. So yeah. Um, so it's looking for cookies left over from these sessions, right? And then sending them back to the attacker, and then the exactly. attacker can use those cookies to log in as you, even if they don't know your login credentials. Right. And if a site is designed, uh, some servers are designed so those cookies can't be replayed from other IP addresses or they have other limitations. But because they have effectively remote control of your browser in a way that's hidden, the software could be modified to run sessions through your browser automatically 
uh, so it's going over the same IP session and grab information. So again, it, yeah, only, it said it could also add you to those botnets that are the Internet of Things. Yeah, because you can. Take, I mean, the router yeah. takeover is the is part of the big deal. Is that by having this access, um, you know, most routers could then be hijacked um, internally, and you can the, someone remotely could either poison your entire network because they can change the DNS server values on the router that are being assigned to every computer on the network. The other thing he pointed out to me is that you know, say you work at Facebook, you walk, you know, someone wanders in your office and sticks this in and walks away, suddenly that attacker has access to all of Facebook's internal secure servers because they've been accessed by that browser. So it's mm -hmm. not a, it doesn't have to go out over the rest of the internet. It can capture data. It can actually make, um, it can figure out what internal servers are available, make connections to them from that browser without, um, without having a cookie available at all because it's doing it from the browser. So, but, so if your computer is not accessible to others when it's not being used, exactly. and if you log, if you close your browser or like <laughs> shut your computer down when you're not using it, this attack is completely toothless. Yeah, and I expect. I mean, this is the big thing: is people do leave their computers running overnight a lot of times if it's not oh, a laptop. Everybody does, yeah, right. Totally. And that's you know, this is a different kind of risk. But you know, someone would have to break into my house. <laughs> For the sole purpose of doing this, I think I have more vulnerabilities. Sure, sure, but sure. It's, more it's like, not too risky. You, know, you leave your computer unattended. I mean, in a lot, the question is like, like what's this? What's this path of exploit? And it's not so much that um, that everyone's going to get owned by this. It's more that it's so easy that it becomes a simple tool. And talking to Sami, I you know he doesn't know obviously what national security agencies are doing, but he and I talking about it, I realize it's very clear that this is so obvious at one level and it's never been documented i mean it's it's a very clever yeah, thing like this is not yeah, yeah. denigrating his cleverness at all because he's the first person to have documented it right he's the first person to say wait a minute um, but it's likely this is a technique that's in the arsenal of people who routinely you know do incursions uh do like physical incursions so you're an agent of a foreign government you have a thing like this you plug it in because you know you have 40 seconds access or he said in some cases the boot time if you had a faster device not the raspberry pi zero you know it could boot in like five seconds it's like a tiny Linux box, basically. Um, so you could have a small computer you plug in over USB that does the same function. So this may have been something, uh, may still be something that's used as another technique. It to, does sound like some spy movie stuff. It yeah. sounds like someone would like rappel down, like born identity style, plug it in. Like, or that's Mission Impossible. We're going to be know. here in 30 seconds. Susie, we got to get out. No, no, I yeah, just yeah. need, I'm watching the countdown go, tick, tick, tick. okay, pull it. All right, pull the rappel line. Zip. You go up through the you ceiling. You just got poison tapped. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, so wow. everyone go read the story just to like tingle your spy sense, movie Spies. sense. But don't worry that like this is you know going to happen to you tomorrow because it's probably not. Just put rubber or put uh, permanent uh, glue into all your USB and Thunderbolt ports. You'll be cool. Yeah, that's, maybe uh, Apple is protecting us by just removing the ports from everything. Right, They're right. like, those aren't safe. USB You're going to put your eye out. Well, you know, one of the things with USB-C's future is that um, that at some point the the group, the USB Implementers Forum, realized after the first wave of USB-C came out. Uh, devices came out, and there were a lot of problems, as we've discussed, with uh, reliability, compatibility, um, safety. Some cables are made so poorly, and they all, you know, they're not going through the same rigid certification process. A future version of USB C will require authentication because every USB C cable, just like every Lightning and Thunderbolt cable, has a tiny computer in each end. So um, if you are every end that has one of those types on it. So if you have USB-C to DisplayPort, the DisplayPort does not have a computer on its end. It's just an electrical output. On the USB-C end, it's got a tiny, tiny computer in the cable. And um, so you can have an authentication system where those uh, get you know built at the factory with encryption built into them 
So at some point you will have uh, you'll plug something into your computer and it'll say, "Hey, this is not a certified device. It doesn't pass the test. Using it could violate your warranty and damage your equipment. Do you want to proceed? Yes, no." Uh, <laughs> yeah. Phew. Yeah, like they do now with software. They yeah. say like you can use the software. We're not going to you know start restricting like what you can run on your computer. We're just going to warn you that hey, like this isn't signed. You'll be sorry. Um, Another security issue this week that I think uh, – or it was last week rather – that um, I think is worth talking about very briefly. I think uh, we've got an article up about it. So uh, the iCloud uh, came out as usual, people kind of freaking out about it as if it were a massive security hole. And then it's like, well, it's not, but it's not good. It's um, when uh, – if you're logged into iCloud on an iOS device, all of your call history is synced to all the other devices that you're connected with. Which is good from the standpoint of you know you know it gives you this unified kind of um, call interface across everything you use, but it's mm-hmm. bad because they don't disclose that that information is passed through iCloud, and Apple when it put out a statement about this. So if you go to Apple's site, it doesn't tell you this information is synced, um, but it's you know it's obvious because you find the same information in multiple places. So it's obviously being synced. Apple says it doesn't pass the information through unencrypted. It uses user keys and so forth, but. It is another point of weakness, and it's the kind of thing that should be disclosed. So really, they should have been ahead of this, and it should have been in their privacy disclosures, and now there's more information known about it. Yep. Oh, and, it didn't bother me, but I mean, I think it, you know they should disclose it yeah, it's and just, or let you opt in and out. It's iCloud. Uh, also, uh, someone pointed out uh, it was um, uh, uh, Chris Segoyan. We'll talk about another Segoyan later in this episode, in fact. Chris Segoyan uh, noted that it's also important to remember that if you have iCloud enabled, the iMessages, not all of your iMessages, because those are encrypted across devices, but all the iMessages on your given iOS device are backed up to iCloud. So if someone gets access to that iCloud backup, they can retrieve all your iMessages, even though without that, it would effectively be impossible unless they got a hold of a device at either end of that uh, connection. So that weakens your security and privacy related to iMessages. So something Apple needs to have a few more checkboxes, like don't back up iMessages to the cloud. It seems like a very reasonable thing that you could choose, you know? Yeah, you could be like, I don't mind if I lose all my iMessages if I lose my device or break it. It's fine. Don't back them up. Um, Because a lot of people don't like their, you know, that's why apps that, destroy your messages are so popular because not everyone wants those backed up forever i know and it's like and you can't you can't control it. it's another one of these apple things like you don't have granular control over backups even if you're an advanced uh user and um it, you can't even i mean you've had this problem haven't you where you wind up with like five gigabytes of iMessage data on your phone but you yeah, can't so delete much. it you have to restore your phone to get rid of it I know. And I wouldn't, I, you know, I change phones a lot, obviously. And I'm always tempted to start as a new phone. Like my husband's phone has some trouble like connecting to our home Wi-Fi. And every time I give him a new phone, I'm like, this will fix it because I use this phone and it connects just fine. Like he still will have trouble. So there might be something, you know, in his backup that just keeps putting it back on the phone. And I, I, I don't know. Like, so, but, but yeah, like, so I'm always tempted to start fresh, you know, from a fresh install. I do that with my Macs. I start fresh every time. Um, but I don't want to do it on my iPhone and the main 
main reason why is because I don't want to lose that iMessage backup. Um, there isn't like one simple button to click to download every picture that everyone's ever texted you and every you know thing and make it a readable like nice archive that I can save because I actually do want to save that. I'm not as into the destroying thing. Like, have you ever gone back and with with a really good friend and like looked at your iMessage history and just like scrolled back a couple of years and just laughed at the hilarious stuff you guys text each other? It's it's wonderful. Oh, yeah, if you so, if you use iMessage on your Mac at all, you know it creates those archives. You can disable that feature, but if you have archives, which I think I've had on by default, I'll be doing a spotlight search on my Mac and it'll pop up one of the matches. You know, it won't even be looking for someone or an old chat, and it'll be like, oh, there's an iChat archive, and I click on it, and it's like, oh, there's that conversation we had. Uh, you know, that I that I have stored forever on my computer. Yeah, it's nice. Maybe that'll be my next project to figure out the best way to archive those from my iPhone so I can keep them and then I can just go ahead and completely wipe my phone and start over um, and see if that, you know, makes it nice. So if you have suggestions for me, let me know. But I think that's going to be something that I dig into because there's got to be a way to do it. There's got to be some software that just lets you like grab it all because I mean, yeah, like my my brother will send me like pictures of my niece and nephew and I know that I can save those to my camera roll and then they're, you know, backed up to Google photos and all the stuff that happens kind of, you know, automatically. But when they're in that messages app, they're, they're nowhere. Like they're just sitting there they're backed up to iCloud, but not in like a super accessible way. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a good question. I dig it. I dig it. It's, um, it's, if you want to save your memories, it's very difficult compared to, I mean, this is a lack of control. It's harder to export that. I think there is software that lets you export your messages, but it I haven't totally tested it. It totally is. I know there it's is. I think, I think I've got pitches in my email for it. I'm going to find it. We had uh, another uh, uh, security story. This is security week, I guess. Something like that. A little bit of it. Uh, Jason Snell wrote an The week ex- of Thanksgiving is kind of unofficial security week. Like you go home, you help your parents with their oh, settings. Yeah. And, I often yeah. write a column that's like, here's how to fix all your relatives' problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jason Snell has such a story because uh, his sister called because she had some kind of Safari malware, which rewrote her homepage so she could not open Safari on her Mac without it loading these junk sites that kept opening windows and said, call this number or the, you know, and she called it and then realized it was a scam. Um, and those are very, very common. So it uh, wasn't ransomware, like nothing was encrypted. It was just like take over your browser, like exactly. rudenessware. There was no yeah. way you could, you could uh, fix that. And um, I've had that happen on my iPhone and iPad, if I go to an unwary, you know, I'm doing researching a security site, I go to a some kind of terrible site and it launches an ad that like launches endless, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, Me- uh, like message windows, like uh, email windows in from the browser and it w- mm-hmm. launches them continuously. So when you cancel one, there's just a series of endless ones and it's call this number to fix your computer. You've been infected by a virus. We can help you, right? Yeah. Um, and in the end, you have to, uh, you can kill the process. You can kill Safari, but it doesn't change the homepage. On the, uh, whatever Jason's sister did, I think there's a way where you can change your homepage. It'll rewrite your uh, default homepage. And uh, without it being, um, you don't need that much You can can launch to like a blank page instead of launching to the homepage, but that didn't even work. Like he had to eventually just have her disconnect from the internet and then launch Safari and then go in and change the homepage from there. Hours because that's the non-obvious thing. He tried all the other things and you can delete. You know, because he was screen sharing, so they couldn't turn off the internet and keep (laughs) the screen sharing. So they finally just got on the phone and he's like, "Turn off your turn off your internet." But yeah, it took him a while to get there because they tried like everything else first. It was really just you know she just had a blank out the homepage, but um, very upsetting. It's also the kind of thing like whatever 
did that, it's probably some technique that lets you say, okay, you know, brings up a thing. You don't realize you're saying, okay. And it changes a preference that Safari accepts. Cause I don't think there's a malware aspect that's well, we used your to see this like when you downloaded, um, if you downloaded software from one of those like sketchy software sites and then oh, yeah, it came, yeah. you know, bundled with like some adware and some, you know, like, uh, you know, s- rhymes with snack creeper and <laughs> um, <laughs> like those but, snack creeper emails from people trying to, yeah, insu- but like, but, many fewer, and, by the way, snack- and, and that's better now, but like older yeah. versions used to really worm your way in. Like I saw one where it took over the browser, it like highlighted the word Mac keeper everywhere and it was like, it was really insidious to get it out installed a bunch of toolbars i was like what is this 1999 like it was crazy just, just and fyi I, the mac 911 email we used to get um i was getting several emails a week about about rhymes with the uh, crack meeper and um it uh it, those have sl- slowed down they only get like one a week so i'm assuming that the company you know the company got sold and the new people the said they were going to be the version is easy to uninstall yeah. it's just like these old versions that are still probably out on the internet somewhere and like right. sometimes people didn't even mean to install them they just came riding along with whatever you downloaded so yeah like I mean one of my friends was trying to download drivers for like a Wacom tablet that they don't make anymore and oh she found God. them on like you know one of those here's a bunch of Mac software sites and instead of getting them like from Wacom which w- they're probably still up there on Wacom but they're probably hard to find because it's such an old tablet so yeah like she ended up you know, infecting her machine. So maybe something like that is what happened to Jason's sister. We don't really know. It's really easy. That's why I say never download software from any site except the developers or Apple because, um, you know, there are sites sites that used to be reputable that helped you find downloads when it was harder, when, you know, bandwidth was scarce or whatever. And some of those sites now bundle adware and some of that adware is going to be rogue. You know, even if it's good, meaning it's not specifically malicious, it's still adware. Yeah, you don't want it. Um, we spent yeah, a lot of time the last few source. weeks talking about MacBook Pro and uh, the Touch Bar, but um, we, I think this came out after our last our last yeah. conversation. Uh, Dan Jalkut, who's a wonderful person, uh, great developer, great human being, um, came out with Touche for Touch Bar, which lets you run Touch Bar in your non-Touch Bar Mac. So you can see what's going on. And also for developers, clearly, to give them a way to at least test somewhat, you have to have a version of – help me here, Susie – it's 12. One. Yeah, it has to be the build with um, Touch Bar support. So oh, yeah. it's, so it's have... only the build that they're putting on MacBook Pro. So you have to download it. Like if you just like went to software update or, you know, the Mac App Store to update your software and you're not using a MacBook Pro with Touch Bar, you would never be like offered this build. So you have to download it like on the side. Yeah. So I'm looking at my Mac, for instance, I have, uh, you know, so folks, you know how you get your version numbers is a little tip that I think people know, but if you click, you take the Apple menu about this Mac, it'll say version 10.12.1. If you click that, it adds the build number. And so my build is 16 B like beta 2555, which is the last build uh, for every machine except the touch bar ones, I think, of the new Mac. So yeah, mine is 16B2657, which right. is the touch bar build because I'm so using a MacBook down- Pro with touch bar. Right. So if I go to Apple site and I download what they say is the 10.12.1 update instead of using the automatic process, it'll still install my machine and then I will have that built. So I haven't done that yet, but that's kind of a... Kind of a fun thing that you could do. So uh, if you want to do... Because t- Apple built a touch bar simulator into Xcode, but you have to have Xcode. And you, it's like, it's not... So um, so this just kind of gets it out of there and just puts it on your screen. And, you, you know, you can interact with it with the... Uh, 
trackpad, obviously, and um, just kind of get a little taste of, of what it does. I just saw a video someone posted uh, where they have a touch bar Mac, and the touch bar wound up in the middle of their regular screen. The touch bar is blank, and the touch bar display, like it's being rendered into their regular display. So oh, something yikes. something went wrong. I mean, who knows how awful. Something... Oh, yeah, what would happen if I put it on this Mac with the touch oh, bar? Oh, don't do would it, I get Susie. two touch bars? It's like know. crossing the streams, it's, right? It's being John Malkovich bar or something. I don't it know. It is. My machine would just be like touch oh, bar, touch God. bar, touch bar, touch bar. Um, speaking of touches, touch things, touch disease, the worst name ever. For I know I don't hardware. like it. Show me on the iPhone so where the disease you got, what, touched you. iPhone six plus, right? Have the problem. I've like I will That's, admit I've never heard of this until I, like now. It apparently was really really irritating people who had it, and some people went through multiple replacements. A gray flickering bar at the top of the display, unresponsive touch screen. Yeah, it's described. Touch disease was coined by iFixit, which I love those folks. So uh, affects, I'm sorry, iPhone 6 and iPhone 6 Plus. So this is two versions back and uh, not the 6S or 6S Plus. And so apparently, I mean, ostensibly, they, um, if you got it there under warranty, ostensibly they're going to replace it. But if you have, um, if the problem persists, you can now get it repaired for $149. Uh, but it says, but I fix it says the problem will recur because the touchscreen isn't the problem, but actually like touchscreen controller chips that are deep in the phone. So there's a class action lawsuit being proposed and uh, Apple, um, it's a question about what Apple's going to do about this issue. But so if you have this problem, you think you should tune in and see what's going on because, uh, you know, I don't know. It feels like manufacturing flaws like that. They should just be replacing the whole thing. I don't know why they're playing a game where you have to pay for it, where if you didn't do something to it and your phone is, you know, less than, I mean, if it's a year old, it's under regular warranty. I always get Apple Care Plus. So ostensibly this problem will be fixed under a, a two-year one. But if you don't have Apple Care Plus, you're supposed to pay 150 bucks. It just seems not quite fair. Nope. Since it's a, you know, there's a difference between components failing over time and then a, a consistent problem across models. So if you have that problem, do a little research so that you uh, don't overpay. Um, I mentioned a, Sequoy- a Segoyan earlier, Chris Segoyan, who is at the ACLU, is chief technologist there. There's another Segoyan. You know this other Segoyan, Sal Segoyan, long time, it's his uncle. Sal is uh, Chris's uncle. Are they related? Oh, I yeah, never yeah, yeah. like put that together. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've known Sal for, I don't know, 15 years. I've met Sal. He is lovely. He's a wonderful person. And so when I, uh, I at some point, I, Chris, uh, Chris Seguin entered the uh, world's view when, as a graduate student, he figured out a way, uh, very simply, to create fake boarding passes that would allow you to get past security. Oh, yeah. And uh, he never used them. And he wound up having, I think, the FBI visit his house. He got denounced by a member of Congress. And then eventually, you know, nothing. there was never any prosecution. He didn't do anything ostensibly illegal. And he didn't recommend using them. It was just this interesting proof of concept because it's part of the security theater of airports. Sure, and, uh, sure. and that's why part of this is now why you get scanned. Um, when you go through, like they scan it and they check it and they look at it, like mm-hmm. that was a later change because partly because of his work, um, which that's less security theater. I mean, you can still get a, you can just yeah. Buy I mean, a, like that's keeping us safer. Like know, that's an buy, actual thing that helped. Right, and you can always buy a ticket pretty cheaply. You can find the cheapest ticket you could buy yeah, and get through. But still, get it's like one more 
level. Um, it's more tracking involved in what you do. But so uh, anyway, so Chris, Chris is a very interesting fellow as well, and he's advanced in his career. Was at a you know was at the FTC for a bit, and uh, I saw him at South by Southwest with uh, speaking with Edward Snowden. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And so he wound up. Uh, yeah, he wound up at the. He worked. Uh, I think he's uh, one of these people. Is interesting just on the security side, where he'd worked with uh, both the Soros Foundation, had a grant from them, and with some group that's on the other side of the um, political ideological spectrum. Because you go to both ends of the ideological spectrum, mm-hmm. and people are highly concerned about privacy. Interestingly, <laughs> a lot of room for common growth there. But um, so Sal has been for almost twenty years the guru of Apple Script first, and then automation, like Automator in general at Apple. And um, he comes from the publishing industry. And one of his best known feats is on a, at a conference stage, uh, I think it's in the late 90s, he gets up there. And uh, do you remember those devices that let you dial into your Mac? You could like dial in and remote control stuff with a phone? No. Oh my gosh, these were hilarious. So you, pl- you know, be like a USB or ADB was before USB, ADB device. You plug it into a phone line, and um, I had a thing that would actually let me power cycle my Mac remotely. I forgot what it was called, but it was a power strip with individually addressable outlets, and you could dial it up, and you could reboot your Mac. So if you had a server or something else that was running, you could power cycle it and hope the Mac came back up. But there were also I mean, things that fixes everything. Right? I, yeah, exactly. This is power. <laughs> this is before OS ten. Let me tell you. Um, but then you, there are also devices that you call in and you could do like automation. You could create phone trees. You could run voicemail systems from them as well as other things. So Sal did this demo. He's on stage and he called and like updated through a phone, updated the price of a product in a database that then produced like a new Quark document or something and printed it out on stage just by phone Sweet. all through Apple Script and automation. So um, he's been one of this, you know, leading voices. There's times I have heard, uh, you know, off to the side that there are times that Apple was about to kill, you know, new support for Apple Script. Not kill it entirely, but it was never a priority there. And he fought a battle internally that I think was well-regarded. It wasn't like he was a pain in the behind. It was more like I think he kept reminding people at various levels of the company how important automation is to professional markets like publishing, which builds entire workflows that involve you know using Apple Script and other connective tissue. Um, mm-hmm. And also when new apps would come out, like pages would come out and would have no Apple Script support. You couldn't do anything to it. And he would beat on the doors of people, is what I heard. And then eventually there'd be enough management support and we'd have some Apple script, control, you know, or, or more automator control and so forth. Automator is the most underrated app that's ever been in OS X. I love 10. Automator. It's so I'm amazing. Not, like, I'm not a programmer and it makes you feel like you can, you know, program your Mac it's without, so you know, amazing. having to write code. There's so many things you can Automator. do with it, especially like rewriting file names and cleaning stuff. It's just, uh, you can do so much. Launch Automator sometimes, folks, and you'll, if you haven't used it before. So it's, it's just fun to play with. It's it's neat. I mean, there's so many things you can do. So Sal, the reason talking about Sal, Sal announced at an event a few days ago that he has no longer has a position. His position was eliminated at Apple, um, and he doesn't seem unhappy about it. He's had a long career there, and uh, he'll probably wind up being a consultant on automation projects for folks. And uh, is a good guy. But people, it's another one of these things like the designed in Cupertino book, where you're like, gosh, is uh, how much of a commitment to the Mac? And the way the Mac works is Apple have when they're getting rid of, you know, somebody and reducing, obviously, changing resources allocated to something that serves a market, particularly a professional market. Um, so, you know, we don't know. It may just be that they felt like the amount of time and effort needed to focus on automation has changed. And, you know, we'll see. But it's just another little a little checkbox there about like, huh. So, again, doesn't mean the future of the Mac is doomed, but it has 
an impact on uh, what the professional, the future for the Mac as a tool for professionals in various fields that need certain kinds of specific things is. Yeah, I was sad to hear it. Um, and he, it should be mentioned that he um, maintains and hosts a website that he actually had the whole time he was at Apple. Um, it's macOS10automation.com and 10, you know, as a as an X. So, um, and he's going to keep doing that. So oh. visit that if you're into automation or if you want to get into it and um, ch- check out what he has there. It's a ton of great tips and workflows he has, and advice. He has this mail merge thing he's done for pages that uh, is really amazing. It's, um, it's like a combination of Apple script and some other stuff. So if you're trying to do mail merge, like pages is, ter- it doesn't really have that. And he created a way to do it. And I occasionally get emailed to Mac 911 because I mentioned it once, and I can't do tech support of like somebody else's product, so I point people back to the. Uh, he, you know, he'll often respond to people in Apple forums. Now he'll have time to respond directly, uh, but if you're doing mail merge stuff with pages, which is an exercise in frustration and awfulness, you you can do it. Um, you can feed in like a you take a numbers. I think you create a spreadsheet in numbers and you can feed that into pages with his templates. And uh, uh, it's got a bunch of limitations, not because of him, but because of what automation features are available in Apple's iWork suite. Uh, one more story. One more story and then we'll we'll call it a day. Um, <laughs> Apple. So the rumor is that Apple will be cutting the App Store fee from 30% to 15% for video streaming apps for subscriptions ostensibly. Um, and I think that is a, uh, would be a great thing. And that might be, that'll get app, uh, Amazon in. I don't know. Cause they don't do subscriptions. So maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's maybe that's what Netflix needs in order for Netflix to agree to be part of the TV app. Um, so it'll be part of all those listings. I don't know. I think it's important. That would be great. And like that might also open up the door maybe for Amazon video. Yeah. Although, but Amazon Which doesn't sell, prayer. but they don't sell subscriptions per se. Like they sell, Prime, but Amazon Video is isn't it stuff you've already bought as downloads? Like you can't get a streaming subscription. You can rent things yeah. and buy things. Do you think? Oh, is it? But it, uh, but I think this. I wonder if the story is going to be is going to be only for streaming subscriptions, like say HBO Now or something. That's true. I mean, maybe Amazon is like, if you can't sign up for Prime through the app, like, why would we do the app? But if they, if you could sign up for th- Prime through the app and it became like a big revenue stream for them, maybe they would do it. That's true. I, it's, it makes sense I just to want me. My Amazon, Glenn, come on. I know. I do too. It seems so <laughs> I know, silly. I know you do. I've got We're that. Both Sam- on this too. I've got the Samsung TV, so I, I suffer with that. Uh, it's also, I mean, we've talked about this before too. Is as somebody who used to run a magazine that was sold via the App Store. Charging 30% for, um, I mean, Apple's done that new thing, which is subscriptions that last for more than 12 months, they've dropped the fee, right? The second year mm-hmm. you pay a lot, yeah. the, 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 they're taking a lot smaller cut. I think for media in general, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's a reasonable change and it's a big one for companies or apps that have multi-year subscribers, right? That's going to be a nice thing and it kicks them up and it gives them a reason to uh, have incentives to have people to resubscribe and uh, or to have to structure themselves in a way that encourages long-term subscriptions. However, I also think that any kind of consumable or I'm sorry, like media that you get like movie, uh, TV program, uh, magazine issue, newspaper issue, or like other stuff that's media that does not have a in-game component or isn't a functionality thing like, um, you know, a year worth of VPN service. I think those should all be at 15% too. It, it, there's no, the, there's no um, like benefit that Apple is providing that, that warrants that for other in app purchases. Maybe you could argue there is, you know, this extra benefit Apple's built this whole ecosystem and you're, you're doing a thing 
that is, you know, specific to the ecosystem, they deserve 30%. But for media, it's just nonsense because it's available everywhere. And Apple wants the 30% just because you're inside the ecosystem where they haven't provided, they haven't, you know, given the value to it. They're not adding a value to it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, then you get back, you might be able to then get Comixology back, um, you know, Amazon, which Amazon Ooh, bought. yeah. Amazon might be able to sell books in there and so forth. I mean, Amazon doesn't want to give a 15% cut, but, you know, Apple includes the credit card charge, other back-end fees and support. And um, Amazon does offer anywhere between a 4 and 8% commission to affiliates. So if you add it up, Amazon can sometimes be giving away 12% or more, 12 or 13% of a transaction. So they might be willing, because of volume, to take a 15% hit for stuff sold through the um, through the apps or throw the apps uh, sorry throw through the app directly within a iOS but we'll see I just think I like that Apple clearly that thirty percent wall has now been broken a bit and we'll see and hopefully we'll see more of that yeah and thus we are at the end of this podcast we have completed our journey <laughs> we have we've broken down walls we've Paladin uh... we've made it. <laughs> Yep. Uh, so, Susie, great to talk to you again and have a very happy and calm, uh, hopefully politics-free Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Yes, you too. Have a have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you very much. I'm thankful for everyone out there in podcast land. Thank you guys for listening. Yeah, I'm very thankful to listeners. Otherwise, we're talking to ourselves. But we love to hear back from you so we know you're listening. So we you know, zoom back to the front of this episode. We gave you all our contact methods. Please do give us your feedback. And uh, you've been listening to the Macro Podcast episode... 535 for November 23rd, 2016. And you will hear from us again next week.